there are movies that are so good that you watch them again. Sometimes you rewatch those movies because the ending is so surprising that you want to watch it again just to see what you missed the first time. Does it mean that you were surprised that there weren't any clues? It's just that as you watched that movie in real time, you missed them. The person who's revealed to have committed the crime was the one that was so easily overlooked. Everything needed to discern what was going to happen was there, but you didn't see it. Now, much of that in a movie and in life is linked to your expectations. There are ways that you and I expect the world to work. So much so that we don't even have a category for the world working another way. So if this week you were to lose 1,000 dirhams in the mall, you would expect you wouldn't get it back. You'd be surprised and thankful if you did. It turned out that someone didn't steal it. You would expect that if someone can take advantage of you in this world, they probably will if they won't suffer consequences. How thankful we are when they don't. So if what happens if the ending confounds us, and what I mean by confound is it surprises you because it doesn't meet your expectations. If you're confounded, it's fair to ask, was there something wrong with what you expected? Why didn't you see what you should have seen? Why were you confounded, surprised, because your expectations weren't met? To be a Christian is to understand that one day the whole world will be confounded, surprised, because the world is headed toward an ending that will not meet its expectations. What the world takes for granted about what will happen won't. And it won't be the first time the cross of Jesus Christ confounded. Even those who should have been the most prepared for it should have accepted it, expected it. And that's what we see this morning in John 12, verses 12 through 36. That's where we'll be this morning. Jesus confounds those who should have known better. And it's not until they rewatch everything that it begins to all make perfect sense. So here's the main point I want you to get this morning. King Jesus must confound you before King Jesus can save you. King Jesus must confound you before King Jesus can, can save you. It must surprise your expectations. So we will see two ways that he confounds this morning. And the first is as the confounding king, the confounding 
king. And that's in verses 12 through 19 of this text. Look down to verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So he has now feasted with Mary and Martha and Lazarus for the last time. He comes to Jerusalem. This is the Sunday before the day he dies, widely known as Palm Sunday. The feast, verse 12, is Passover. There's a great crowd in Jerusalem, and there are clearly great expectations for Jesus. They went, and they took branches from palm trees. Nothing in their law commanded them to get palm branches. So why'd they do it? They made effort to get those branches because they had become somewhat of a a national, a patriotic symbol, a kind of a flag represented who they were and their aspirations. Palm branches expressed expectations. Verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So even what they're chanting is wrought with expectation. And it's shaped by the scriptures. Psalm 118, 25, 26, it reads, Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's Hosanna. That's what it means. And then it reads, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Except this crowd here adds, even the king of Israel. So they're filled with nationalistic expectation. And they see in Jesus the one that could fulfill what they had for so long been shaped to believe were right expectations from the scriptures. But what if their expectations, everything they had taken for granted about this king, this Messiah, was wrong? 
What if they had missed the clues? But ask you even now as we begin, what is shaping your expectations for life, for the Christian life? I mean, think about what you expect. What do you hope for in life? Cross-shaped expectations are very different from world-shaped ones. So why is it that when you meet a trial or a struggle, you're surprised? When if you're a Christian, the cross tells you that this kind of world is, is one in which trials are the way, not a deviation from it. Or take rejection, hardship, or loss. If you're living your life under the cross, it's not that you go after those things, but you're not surprised when they come. Could it be that what surprises you, what you can't believe is happening to you, reveals that there are areas of your life that the cross is not shaping your expectations? It's easy to say it is. But then the surprises we experience along the way shows otherwise. This crowd expects a king, a kind of king that will address the entire problem of the Roman Empire. Their expectations are shaped, filled with worldly power. So be careful what shapes what you expect. Only biblical hope, only biblical expectations are what will last. Just thinking about us as parents, what's shaping our expectations of our own children? Are we praying? Are we modeling such that they will take the long cross-shaped path of obedience, a long obedience in the same direction, no matter what we say? They see our priorities. Kids, students, if you will follow Jesus, you will know very real cost. There's no exceptions to what Jesus said when he said, take up your cross and follow me. This crowd doesn't even consider that their expectations might be wrong. But Jesus did. If you know this account, you know he comes in on a donkey. Do you ever think about how deliberate he was to find it? John simply says he found a young donkey, a donkey's colt. Point in whatever gospel is this was deliberate. Fervor, the anticipation, the expectation of Jesus had reached this intense level. And there's few people in this world who have a following like that who will not take advantage of it. But their adulation is not what drives Jesus. Their salvation is. By waving those palm trees, they were broadcasting their expectations with a symbol. And Jesus responds to them with a symbol of his own. He did not go and find a powerful war horse. He found 
a donkey. So if they are chanting their expectations from the scriptures, here is Jesus acting based on his. In Zechariah chapter 9, God promises his people, your king will come and your king will rule the nations, but he will come in humility, surprisingly, on a donkey, peaceful, weak. And yet a kingdom will come from this humble ruler that goes from sea to sea. And for centuries, this text just hung there. A king who's humble, who conquers by making peace, who will gain power through weakness. A humble, confounding king, unlike any king. Jesus proclaimed when he rode in on that donkey, this is to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah said. No, he simply did it. He just drops clues. He knows, verse 16, after reflection, after the time when the disciples look back and they rewatch it, they will see clues that they missed in real time. Because then they would have the help of the Spirit. And they would miss, or they would see what they missed in the present. It would only be by the Spirit when they rewatched it all that they would remember it and they would intentionally see the clues that their king had given. Then they would see everything, wouldn't they, through the very surprising ending of the cross and the resurrection. Only when Jesus revealed himself in full glory, then they would see the significance of what they had seen. So notice here, Jesus is not rejecting their expectations. He's reworking them. He's upending them. A king on a cult, he means to confound them. And yet everything he's communicating tells them the kind of king he is and the kingdom he brings. If we mistake what kind of king Jesus is, the blame is with us, not Jesus. Jesus is winning a people by taking a very costly path of costly peace. It's not an unjust peace. It's a just one. So what does this say about our king? It says, if you would understand the gospel of the king, you have to do away with all that is hardwired in you by nature that you assume about salvation. You know, even if you're a Christian, the air that you breathe in this world is that you must do something to make your mark. If you could just achieve that, you would matter. If you get to that place in life or that place in your ministry, you will have proven to other people it was worth it. But your king came in on a donkey and he tells you that your assumptions are wrong. 
Salvation comes through weakness. What he achieved in weakness, not what you do in power and might, is what at the end of everything will be the only thing that stands eternally. Striving to make your mark. Absolutely nothing wrong with ambition. But once you understand that what you need most is what your king has accomplished, that you cannot possibly accomplish, that's the only thing that frees you out of accomplishing out of need, not out of need, but out of freedom. Point is that you do not have to run after. You do not have to relate to power and ambition the way this world does. If your king went down this path deliberately to follow him, so must you. He's freed us to follow him in this way. Doesn't make sense in the moment, but it will after time. The disciples wouldn't make sense of what kind of king he was and what that deliberate act meant on that Sunday until after the time. John tells us a bit about the crowd there in verse 17. Some were with him. When he raised Lazarus, they are continuing to bear witness. That's why this crowd went to meet Jesus. They've heard he'd done the sign. They wrapped the sign in all the wrong expectations. If he can raise a man from the dead, he can overthrow Rome. He can, but not like you think, not like you expect. When we think of Jesus, we often, and his work in salvation, we often think of what he endured to achieve salvation. When's the last time you think about what he resisted to achieve salvation? He resisted here real popularity. He resisted every opportunity he was given to avoid going to the cross. He resisted siding with this crowd. He resisted siding with the Pharisees. He resisted choosing a life of obscurity. He resisted it all down to finding a horse instead of a donkey. He deliberately took every step. Every time he was given a way out, he resisted to a point, to pressures you and I have never faced. C.S. Lewis said this so well. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived the sheltered life by always giving in. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows fully 
what temptation means. So that he might win redemption and reconciliation, Christ resisted all the way to the cross. He's the king who confounds. The Pharisees can see that he's popular. They say it in verse 19. You see that we've, you're gaining nothing. The whole world goes after him. It's clearly an expression of disgust, exaggeration. They despise the fact that this crowd wants him to be their king. And once again, they've spoken better than they know. They speak what is their greatest fear that the whole world will go after this man. The crowd wanted a king who would give them a kind of nationalistic revival that they had only known through stories passed down in their own history. They expected a great national anthem. They did not expect right on, right on in majesty. In lowly pomp, right on to die, die, bow thy meek head to mortal pain and take, O Christ, thy power and reign. Pharisees want him dead, take their place away in the Roman system, and both of them missed what a king on a colt signifies. Because King Jesus confounds. And if you're not confounded by him, if he's not surprised your expectations, You don't know him. He will not be conformed to anyone's wrong expectations of him. He will not be conformed to the wrong expectations the world has of him today. He's a confounding king. And secondly, he's the confounding Christ. The confounding Christ. That's another word for Messiah. Christ. We'll see this in verses 20 through 36. Notice here the expectations they had for the Christ, beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus said, the voice has come for your sake, 
not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light. You may become sons of light. We've seen a crowd and we've seen Pharisees and now some Greeks, Gentiles, those who are from the Greek-speaking world. Notice verse 20, they went to worship at the feast. They were what we call God-fearers. More than likely, they've come into Judaism. And they go to Philip. Why Philip? Probably because while he was a Jew, he has a Greek name. Maybe they knew him in Galilee. In any event, it's not Philip they're interested in. They have a request that's most important. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's not clear why they went to the disciples. It's not clear what they wanted. It is clear they wanted to see Jesus. No coincidence that this comes right after the Pharisees say the whole world has gone after him. And so, verse 22, Philip tells Andrew, they decide we should go together to Jesus to ask him. And it's only after Jesus learns this that he answers, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Throughout this gospel, Jesus has said again and again, my hour has not yet come. But now, as soon as some Gentiles say, we wish to see Jesus, he makes clear the hour is here. He would not die for just one nation, but for the children of God scattered abroad. Could it be? These are some of those children. They want to see him. They've said something far better than they know. Our appointed time of his death and his resurrection is is here. He's about to reveal his glory by way of the cross. What is Jesus doing? He is confounding them. He is revealing himself to them that they may see him. So he is the word who was with God. He is the word who is God. He has come on a mission of revelation. He's going to reveal the father to the world. He reveals truth to the world because he is truth. And to these Greek speaking Gentiles who say they want to see him, they've said something far more profound than they know. So many other people, this moment, before this moment, have seen Jesus, but they've not seen him. The blind man saw Jesus. 
Those who had sight were blinded. This moment, Jesus says, the hour has come. Hour when he will be seen for who he truly is. Verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's confounding. That upends our expectations. No one thinks like that about their life. Who tells you to expect to live that way? The confounding Christ. Have you ever bought seeds? My precious mother-in-law turned 82 this week. Happy birthday. And we, as uh, her in-laws and children, wanted to help her with her garden. So we all pitched in in various ways to help her. And one thing we did was we, we bought various seeds for her that she could go and plant. Now, those seeds right now are in the package. They are absolutely no good out of the ground. It's only when they go into the ground that life comes up. It was such an odd time for Jesus to make an agricultural illustration. But he knows what he's doing. He is saying to his disciples and to these Gentiles who want to see him what it means to see him. This is what it will mean to see me in my glory. This is what it will mean to see and perceive who I am in the world. You must see me by the cross or you will not see me at all. When he goes into the ground, Gentiles will be the fruit of it. Confounding Christ. Unless you've seen his glory at the cross, you've not seen him. Unless you perceive glory there, you remain blind. We live in a world that expects we can do something. We can produce a righteousness that will be acceptable to God. It's so baked into our nature. Jesus is upending this. He's saying dying leads to life. His death, when he is apparently defeated before the world, it will bear much fruit. So confounding because the cross confounds. It upends our expectations. But once you're confounded, you see. They want to see him. And Jesus says, the only way you will see me is through the cross on my terms, or you will not see me at all. Do you want to see Jesus? For you to see him, he must change the way you see. He must give you sight. You assume all is well, but Jesus changes your assumptions. He speaks about the hour. He's going to the cross because the deepest problems of the world are not out there. They're in here. No matter what we do, prayers, charity, good deeds, our sin makes us incompatible with the holy God. Nothing we do changes that. What Jesus did can. His death on the cross, his atonement for sin and sinners, his resurrection from the dead, 
Paul gave us such a great class on the historical evidence for that this morning. That death historically leads to real fruit and life spiritually and physically. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. And his resurrection from the dead means you can be reconciled to God and have life. So earnestly, graciously, I would tell you, repent. Turn away from whatever salvation you seek outside of Jesus and come to him. Come into him by faith. He will receive you. What he's done is good news. Do you wish to see Jesus? See him by the cross and the resurrection. It's to those who see him, who are confounded. He's saying, whoever loves his life, loses it, hates his life, keeps it. Who talks like that? Who who lives like that? Only those who've seen Jesus. Jesus is saying, if, if you make your life ultimate, if what you ultimately love is your life, you will lose your life. So this is a kind of loving of your life that is idolatrous, in which you love yourself, you love your place more than you love God, more concerned for your glory than you are for God's glory. Jesus is offering a path out of that, into freedom, to live for the one you were made to live for. We, we thought about last week uh, at length affections in the Christian life. To, to, to love our life is to live such that your delight is not in you. It's not driven by you. If you love your life, you're thinking about everything as it relates to you. You're at the center of every story. You, you, you see that creeping into your life. Is it all just one big quest for yourself? So that you look good or so things go well for you. Uh, to boast in yourself. Now, I would say to my Christian brothers and sisters, we're not immune from this. Oh, how we can pursue good things in life. Ministry, good things, Bible reading. And self is at the bottom of it all. You think about your life, ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing, not just what you're doing. Why is deeper than what? The world is brilliant doing all kinds of good things for themselves and masking it at the same time. Be careful. Whoever loves his life loses it. As you're taken by the glory of Christ more and more, you think more about your life as it relates to him. Work, school, and family, the relationships, you want the glory of Christ to be seen and known. You see your life as, how can I make much of Christ this week in that way, in that situation? You're willing to bear cost. You want to use gifts that God's given you and opportunities and relationships, not for your own ends, but for his glory. That's what happens when the cross is shaping your life more. Glory is flipped. It's turned upside down. Whoever hates his life keeps it for eternal life. This is not self-loathing. It's more fundamental preference. Whoever thinks so little of your life, so much of God, that you give your life up, you give it away for the glory of God, you're going to keep 
your life. You love it, you give it away. No one in this world, apart from Jesus Christ, thinks that way. No one thinks this is the way the world works. No one believes this is the path to life. Jesus does. If you follow him, this is the path. He's not calling us to a path he didn't go down. To serve him is to follow him where he goes, to follow him to the cross. And notice where that leads. Verse 26, the honor of the Father. Ask yourself, is this the wisdom of the world or is this the the kind of wisdom that confounds because it's the kind of wisdom that comes from heaven? It's when they look back on it all that the disciples will see the cross led to the glory. You love your life? Give it away. Treasure God's glory more than your own. You'll keep your life. We're in a battle for glory. And it's our entire entire lives we battle for glory. How do we grow in glorifying God? We don't just drum it up. We don't fake it till we make it. We don't do this by willpower. We, We must be taken. We must understand. We must know and see God's glory as more precious than our own. So we're taken with that glory. We're satisfied with it. And we know joy, and we know ambition, we know life that makes much of his glory. Think about our own church. Why are we all so encouraged by Jane? Because even with cancer, we see the glory she treasures. Why are we so taken with JC and Monique given a trial they never would have asked for? We, We saw the glory. They treasured. It's confounding. It's confirming. Could go on with a number of you. Is it not that through this the Lord is bearing much fruit? Life is being lived on a level this world does not know. Christ confounded the very people who wanted to see him. And in that he revealed himself to them. You want to see Jesus? See him on the terms he has set. As the hour approaches, his soul intensifies with trouble. Verse 27, do do notice that with Jesus going to the cross, there is no peace that passes understanding. He's troubled and he's resisting the temptation to flee the hour because he hates his life in this world. He thinks so little of it that he makes much of God the Father. Give it up to the glory of the Father. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And in response to that prayer, the voice from heaven. Third time in his public ministry, this happened. His baptism, his transfiguration, and now as he goes to the cross. So at crucial moments in the incarnation, the Father vocally, publicly attests to his identity. I have glorified it in his earthly life. I will glorify it again. Death, resurrection, exaltation, subsequent glories. The Son is moving at every moment according to the glory and the will of the Father. He works as he sees the Father working. 
and he loses his life, he will go down into the ground like a grain of wheat, and the Father will give him glory. No one expects honor coming this way. Humiliation is the path to exaltation. God moved every event in human history to that hour. He announces it. And it's a moment of dramatic revelation. And the crowd, again, verse 29, is marked by confusion. Some think it's thunder. Others and angels spoke. Point is, they've heard the voice of God and they cannot make sense of it because they cannot see Jesus rightly. They cannot hear of spiritual reality. This is a moment of eternal consequence in the unseen heavenly realms. And they do not understand what is happening right in front of them. Voice was for their sake. It was revelation. It's only as they rewatch it all in their minds that it makes sense. All of human history flowed to that hour. It flows from that hour. Jesus is speaking of a decisive event in the unseen world when verse 31, the ruler of the world is cast out. What's going to look to you like my defeat will be the very moment when the back of Satan is broken, when Satan is decisively defeated at the cross. The actual grounds on which he legitimately stood to accuse God's people will be destroyed because of the blood of the lamb. And it's enough. We should not grow used to the fact that we live in a world here in which the vast majority of people do not believe the blood of the lamb was enough. They don't see. They don't perceive what God has done at a cosmic level at the cross. At the cross, he secured salvation. He set in motion the consummation of his kingdom. He cast Satan out. When he was lifted up, he will draw people to himself. Greeks who wish to see him will see him by the cross. It's an effective drawing of Jesus. It's not going to fail. Gentiles will be around the throne. Jews, people from every nation. He did break the dividing wall of hostility. The cross will accomplish every purpose for which Jesus went to it. The cross will not fail. The cross has not failed. No matter how many people reject it. How small we feel, how insignificant we can feel. That's because we are tempted to see as the world sees. Jesus didn't go to the cross afraid. I hope this works. He achieved salvation there. He didn't do it saying, I hope some people are saved. He secured salvation. He knew that he would be mocked there, but he knew he would not be mocked at the end of history. Brothers and sisters, the fact that the tyrannical reign of Satan has been broken gives us boldness. Life, faith, evangelism. He does hold some authority in this in-between time, 
but we know his reign is doomed for failure. He worked to bring about the cross and he was confounded and conquered there. Keep discerning our world through the lens of the cross, not the cross through the lens of the world. Whatever your circumstance this morning, reason from the cross to your circumstance, not from your circumstance to the cross. If he did not avoid the cross, if he would do good to you through the cross, I'll be so confident he's doing good to you in this moment, in your situation. And brothers and sisters, look forward. Because of the cross, a great salvation is coming. A new world is coming. He will be seen in his glory. It's as he spoke of being lifted up that they began to understand he's saying he's going to die. They can't make sense of the messianic, the Christly claims he's making. They can't put the two together. 32 and 3 and 4, the Christ and death, the Son of Man lifted up. It's why they say what they say in verse 34. Why they ask that. I mean, they, they have the Old Testament. They clearly believe that Christ, the Davidic Messiah, is going to live forever. They don't understand how the divine messianic Son of Man must die, but they will. After the time when he's raised and they see what they didn't see. And Jesus is so like this. He doesn't help them. Verse 35, the light is only going to be among you for a little while longer. What you do with the light matters. Darkness is a threat. Jesus, the light of the world, saying, not going to be here much longer. What little time remains, believe. Come into the light. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Could they have fathomed what they had asked for? How he would confound them and their expectations. Humble king on a donkey. The unexpected Christ who will gain a crown, but only through a shameful cross. Who did not say to all of those followers, kill for me, but give your lives away. You might keep them. He confounds us to save us. He gives us new, better expectations. And graciously, he gives us sight so that we can see.